Good morning, Springville. I just had a wardrobe change uh, five minutes ago. So looking good, loving these. Thanks, Andrea, uh, for sharing. Today, we finish our series called Stories Jesus Told, uh, looking at some of the major parables that Jesus told, some of the stories that he told to really try to massage kind of the kingdom message that he came with, the good news of the gospel, into uh, people's hearts and minds. And we've seen them be very paradoxical, right? They've kind of been upside down, and, and they've been very interesting. I remember an interview I saw in 2014 in New York Times uh, with the former mayor of New York, uh, Michael Bloomberg, uh, and billionaire. And he said this, listen, I'm telling you that if there is a God, when I get to heaven, I'm not stopping to be interviewed. He was being interviewed in that moment. That might have been a shot at the interviewer. I am heading straight in. I've earned my place in heaven. It's not even close. Now, as absurd as that sounds, on one level, it makes sense on another level. There's this message that kind of floats around that if you just work hard, you earn your spot, you kind of climb the ladder that life is made up of winners and losers, there's nobodies and there's somebodies. And as long as at the end, some scale of justice, you have the good outweigh the bad, you can just head straight in. But it's not that simple. Because you start to have, to have to ask the question of how good is good enough? Who even gets to define what good even means? What happens when you and I, all of us in this room, have a different definition of good? What if our definition of goodness and what is enough actually conflicts? What do we do then? Michael Bloomberg, as much as he thinks he's heading straight in, was also known to have a girlfriend in every city. Is that good? How do we define what is good? Now often with parables, Jesus completely messes up every single category that we would have for what is good and right and true. He often has a very interesting way to try to communicate to us what truly is moral, what is goodness, what is wholeness, what is righteous. And he often does that with parables. He often does that and then he says, hey, those who have ears, let them hear. And remember throughout this series, we've been looking at these stories because you and I, everyone lives with a fundamental story that we live out of, right? You with me on that? That the story we live in is actually the story that we live out. So religious or not, regardless of where we are with Jesus, if we're following him or we're just here today kind of checking Jesus out, you have a fundamental story that gives you the framework for which you define what is good enough. And Jesus shows up with this last parable and messes up every single category that we would think about good. And he shows us that God doesn't grade on a curve. God doesn't condescend to check our boxes however we define them. He doesn't define goodness like we do with our fluid kind of cultural definitions of good. As if goodness is a moving target that we can't define and also can't hit. And he does it with this story in Luke 18. It's one of my favorite parables. Okay, watch how he starts. So Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down on everyone else. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Pause there. 
If you notice what Luke just did as he's telling us this story, he just gave us the interpretive key on how to understand it, right? So before he starts with Jesus' story, he says, hey, Jesus told this to a specific group of people. Did you catch that? He told it to those who trusted in themselves and looked down on others. Now the Greek there is actually stronger. It's not just that they looked down their nose on others, it's that they saw certain types of people as worthless, and it was by seeing people as worthless that they could tell that, say that they're the other and that we are the worthy, right? So as long as I can define who the really bad ones are, I can then say, well, I'm in the good guy or good girl category. Jesus tells the story to that group of people. And if you notice the word righteous there, now righteous isn't really like a common word, unless you're from Southern California and you surf and you're like, righteous. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, um, but, but, but both in the Old and New Testament, righteousness just means rightness. It's a morally right posture, not perfection, but a dependent posture on the rightness and goodness of God. So you can't actually talk about righteousness without introducing who God is and what God says is good and right and true. So this group of people already think they're killing it. They're nailing it. They're the righteous ones. And then he tells this story. Jesus highlights two very different types of people. Two different people on the same quest. On the same quest to be approved and accepted. Both of these individuals are on a quest to be justified. And that's all of us. I mean, we want to be accepted. We want to be approved. We want to be told, looked in the eye and told, you are good enough, that you are right, that you are loved. That's all of us, of course. But the two characters that Jesus uses in this story go about this in very different ways. So the scene that Jesus starts with, the setting of the story, is he says, well, there's two people who went to the temple to pray. Now this was a daily thing. At three o'clock in the afternoon, you would head to the temple and you would engage in that afternoon prayer. And then he says, one was a Pharisee and one was a tax collector. Now, in the original audience, this wouldn't have made any sense at all. It's already a strange story because tax collectors didn't go to the temple. They weren't even allowed in to the temple, especially to pray especially to go in with the people of God to pray and worship, they were not welcome there. So when Jesus starts this story, it's almost like he's starting saying, hey, two people went to the temple to pray. One was Rosa Parks and the, others, the other was Charles Manson. And you're like, wait, what? Right? So you're already kind of like disoriented. It's like, oh yeah, two people went to pray. Mother Teresa and Al Capone, right? And you're just like, no, no, that's something wrong with this story already, Right? There's something that's breaking categories. They're worlds apart. Yet they're both on the same quest for goodness, for rightness. Then the story continues. He tells us about this Pharisee. So the Pharisee, verse 11, was standing and praying like this, here's the key, about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. I'm so awesome. Greedy, unrighteous, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get. 
This Pharisee is there praying just like everybody else, but he is so impressed with his general awesomeness that the entire prayer is a humble brag. Did you catch that? The most repeated word in the prayer is I. I am like this. I, thank, thank you I'm not like them. Thank you that I do all of this stuff. It's a humble brag. It's a flex. As if God is going to like do this amazing celebration because he shows up and goes, look how great I am. I am crushing it. We got to understand who the Pharisee is. In the first century, Pharisees were the most influential Jewish group at the time by far. Not just religiously, but socially, economically, politically, these guys had clout. They were highly educated. So if you weren't educated, you already felt like you didn't belong in the room around these guys. They really did control all the cultural halls of power at the time. They were the moral majority in the world. If you think about other stories in the Gospels, Nicodemus was a Pharisee. The Apostle Paul was a Pharisee. That's the kind of like fabric that we're dealing with, right? They were very respected voices in society. So Pharisees had the rest of society just constantly applauding them because they were so awesome. And you can see how this impacts his posture before God. First, you see that he's standing. Well, that's the normal posture of prayer in the ancient world. Today, if you go to Jerusalem, you can actually see the wailing wall that you stand in front of and you pray in front of the wailing wall. So that's normal. That's cool. He quotes Bible verses and biblical things in his prayer. That's good. But if you notice, he actually adds some stuff. First thing he says, I fast twice a week. The law only required him to fast once per year. So this guy's like, no, no, no. God's law to fast once per year before the day of atonement, Yom Kippur, not good enough. I'm going to do this twice a week, right? He's going to one-up God on what the law actually requires. And then notice he says, I tithe all that I get. I'm so generous. And notice he says, thank God I'm not greedy like all these other people because I'm so generous that I tithe everything that I have. But the law only calls for the seed and the grain of his land and crops. So what's going on here? Well, clearly this guy's a good guy. But the theme of his prayer is his own goodness. He lacks humility. There's no neediness. There's no dependence on God because he's already so dependent on himself. There's no genuine desire for God because he's already so impressed with himself. And he defines goodness, if you caught it, and justifies himself by what he does and doesn't do or who he's like or not like. Did you catch that? That's his definition of good. But like we've just seen, that's not a good definition of good. Because if you define goodness like that, there's always going to be somebody better. There's always going to be somebody worse. So you're stuck with this moving target of goodness and no objective standard by which to actually measure is this the right definition of good at all. So if you notice, his definition of goodness is about behaving. It's not about becoming. Right? Like, so his prayer's not like, the, the prayer's like, look what I've done, I deserve this. It's not, hey, God, thank you that I'm becoming more, more generous. Thank you that I'm becoming someone of self-control. Thank you that I'm becoming more patient. Thank you that I'm growing in my dependence and my understanding of you. It's not, none of that. There's no sense in his prayer of who he's becoming because of his experience of the goodness of God because he's so impressed with how he's behaving based on his own definition of goodness. So, 
Look at me. Look what I've done. Sure, I'm far from perfect, but at least I'm not as bad as fill in the blank. See, if we define sin only as external behaviors and kind of a moral checklist of bad stuff that we should avoid, then we, like Michael Bloomberg, can define goodness however we want and then think that we're checking the box and we can head straight in. But biblically, sin is far more than just a moral checklist of bad behaviors to avoid. It's living our entire lives as if we're self-made. It's living our entire lives independent from the God who gave us the life that we have. It's defining good and right and true for ourselves, and then pursuing that life. That's what sin is. So does it lead to behaviors? Yeah, of course. But first and foremost, fundamentally, biblically, is that the posture of our heart would be, I don't need God, nor do I want him. That's where sin starts. And the Pharisees were notorious for giving the appearance of being champions of righteousness. They were the good guys. They, they gave the appearance of killing it and nailing the law. Being right became their identity, and everyone knew it. Because every time they came into the room, they were looking to flex. Look at me. Look how good I am. Look at my nice shirt that I just put on. Right? Like, like everything was about absorption in themselves because their entire pursuit was self-identity and self-justification. Now, we know this just intuitively. If you have to tell everybody how awesome you are, you're probably not that awesome. Right? Like, I don't, I don't know. Like, like, we know people like that. And we're like, well, maybe you are people like that. Right? Like, if you have to just continuously show and tell everyone how generally awesome you are, it's probably because there's something about that, that, something about you that you're insecure about, so you're just like, look over here, look over here, look over here, right? That's just intuitive. We know that about the human condition. And that's why Jesus is very harsh with this group of people. So you have to understand, Jesus, I know that we've made like meek and mild Jesus, Pantene Pro-V Jesus, you know, flip-flops, just like floating into rooms, Jesus. Jesus is absolutely unrelenting with one group of people all throughout the Gospels, and it's these guys. Some of the things that he says, you'd be like, that's in there? Jesus said that? Like, we got meek and mild Jesus, for sure, but we got like crazy and wild Jesus, too. But we have to understand is that it's with those who would want to justify themselves and look down on others that he is the most harsh. And it is those who are banged up and broken. They are the sinners who he is most tender with. That's the Jesus of the Gospels. Here's some of the things he says to the Pharisees. He calls them blind guides and sons of hell. Bad, like bad day, right? Like, Jesus, like that's what Jesus called you. Like I don't know if this is my best day. Not living my best life right now right? Brood of vipers, you preach what you don't practice. You do all of your deeds to be seen by others. Woe to you hypocrites. That's, that's big. That's harsh. You are full of greed and self-indulgence, you whitewashed tombs, meaning that the headstone is beautiful. You are dead inside, he also says, you tithe mint, dill, and cumin while neglecting the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. So imagine these guys. 
This is why he, this is why he was flexing so much about he, he tithing everything. He's at his kitchen counter with his like seasoning box. He's going through like his dill, his cumin, right? And his pimentos and his, right? And he, oh, I get 10% because I got this little bag from No Frills, right? Like, and he's doing like the 10%. He's walking to the temple. He's like, look at me. It's ridiculous. Like, it's crazy. And Jesus is just calling them out for their hypocrisy. For the fact that if you don't think you need to be saved from anything, you will in fact not be saved. That's what he's getting at. Now, this is classic legalism. Some of us, depending on where we're from, or the circle we grew up in, or our experience with churches, we've seen some legalism. But legalism isn't actually the root here. It's the symptom of something deeper with the Pharisee. That's what I want to get on before we get, move on to the tax collector. The root here is not the legalism. The root here is pride. All throughout scripture, the sin beneath every sin is pride. Because what pride does is it makes us the authority of our lives. Right? It makes us, like we're going to be the ones driving the motorcycle and Jesus is going to be in the sidecar with the goggles on. Right? Come with me, Jesus. I'm actually going to drive this thing. As long as you stick around and bless me and do what I want you to do so I can live my best life, all good. That's not this Jesus. So pride here is actually the root under the legalism that we see here. Pride distorts reality. Pride distorts how we see ourselves. It distorts how we see God. And it distorts how we see others. Here's the creep, the subtle creep of pride that will get all of us in this room. Pride blinds us to our own flaws and magnifies others. So all week as we go through our week, day to day, school, work, driving, on the internet, which, yeah, stay off the internet, um, there's this hypercritical lens for everyone else. It's always only wrath, justice, Cancel everyone who's toxic because I'm not all grace for me. That's pride. That's how pride shows up. The creep of it is in all of our hearts. That we are hypercritical of others and uncritical of ourselves. And here's the thing, church. This is why this is so hard. We live in a blame-shifting culture that is built on pride. So the motto of our culture, the sermon of our day, is go super easy on you, Scooter but be super harsh with everybody else. All grace for you, no grace for anyone else, no forgiveness, no redemption for anyone except you. Not only that, pride shows up in us thinking that we are only the products of our circumstances and we are never to take the fault or responsibility for where we are. So it's always my drunk dad or my parents, or my spouse, or my naughty children, or because I don't make enough money, or because I made bad personal career decisions, or because my own restlessness and anxiety won't let me just settle for the long haul and be content with what I have, so I keep chasing the next shiny thing. Springville, that's pride. And the creep is real. And it just sits under the surface for all of us, regardless of where we're at with Jesus. It's there. John Wesley famously said, we should be rigorous in judging ourselves and gracious in judging others. Today it's the opposite. Today it's the complete opposite. We just want a free pass for ourselves and only grace and only applause. No self-examination, 
no room for growth, no need for saving. That's, that's the Pharisee. So you gotta understand, like, pride doesn't just cause us to look down on others, but pride actually causes us not to look up. You with me on that? So pride, pride just kind of has us in this place of, like, I only look at myself. And then I just go and live, live life with that. I, I look down on everybody else, but I also don't look up. Like, pride doesn't put God in his rightful place. Not putting God in his rightful place is the beginning of pride. You with me on that? Like, pride is the refusal to actually acknowledge God to be God. God can't be most high when you and I are. Amen? That's pride. That's the creep. So Jesus sets this story up and he says, don't be like this guy, right? And then he moves on to the tax collector. Verse 13, watch. But the tax collector. So remember how scandalous this story is already. Because in, in your mind as the first century audience, you're like, this guy doesn't even belong here, right? But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but he kept striking his chest and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. What a radically different posture. Completely different body language. Completely different heart that we see in the tax collector. Now remember with the parables, Jesus often makes the like, hero of the story the one who is definitely not the hero of the day. Tax collectors were some of the most hated Jews in society at the time. There's an ancient saying that floated around in Greek that they are beasts in human skin. Yikes, right? Like not a good MO for like your entire group of people, right? You gotta understand what tax collectors did. They were Jews who worked for Rome. So think ancient first century Bernie Madoff like Ponzi scheme ripping off their own people so that they can get rich and also prop up Roman power. Not a good look. That's the tax collector. They were excluded from temple worship. They couldn't even be there, weren't even allowed. Their money wasn't even accepted when they did want to come give and they couldn't be uh, witnesses in court, in Jewish court because they were just seen as so despicable as people, morally. And notice that he was standing far off. I love that. So it's likely that he is probably outside the temple court, to the inside court, either in the Gentile court, because in the temple there's all these different like sections, or he's outside altogether. (laughs) Maybe he's not even in the court. He's standing so far off that as the Pharisees are walking into the temple, right, flexing because they're going to go pray because they're awesome, they're walking past him on the outside. And he's there, just hammering his chest saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And they're like, what's wrong with this guy? Go in. God, I'm amazing. That's the scene. That's what's happening here. It's very clear he did not belong. So think about it. Who is the type of person? We all have them. Who's that person? That either they don't feel like they could darken the doors of a church, or you don't think they should. Springville. Let it never be true of us as a church that anyone would feel like they couldn't come to receive the mercy of God. There's an undertow of criticism here to the broader worshiping community that we can't miss. That the mercy of God is not for those who are already killing it and crushing it, but that the mercy of God is those who are so dependent upon it and have come to the end of themselves that they know that they need God. That's what's happening here. And the prayer in Greek is actually emphasized differently, and I love it. 
And prayer in Greek isn't like, hey, have mercy on me, oh God, a sinner. It's, oh God, have mercy on me, the sinner. I'm the sinner. I'm not looking at anybody else's. I'm not grading on a curve. I'm not looking and comparing myself to other people who are better or worse than me. I know the condition of my own heart. I know that if my thoughts were thrown up on a jumbotron in this room right now, I would be mortified. Am I the only one? No. His posture is saying, have mercy on me, the sinner. I know that I'm broken. I know that there's fragmented parts of me that when I'm honest with myself, I want nothing to do with God. I want to pursue what Dustin wants. I want my flesh to be the thing that tells me what is going to satisfy me. And that's the condition of every human heart. And that's what he's confessing. He's not comparing himself to other people because that doesn't matter when you have fallen short of the glory and goodness of God. It doesn't matter anymore. He's guilty and he knows it. Done, period, full stop. That's all that matters. But what's really cool here, little Old Testament geekiness for a second. Are you with me? Are we okay? Two minutes of Old Testament geekiness. The verb that's used here is a hyperlink to something specific about mercy in the Old Testament. And it's the mercy seat. So think, Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark, the Ark of the Covenant, gold thing, uh, set up a meeting with Pastor Ed. He's got a replica, not the real thing, but he's got a replica on his, on his shelf. You can go look at it, okay? But it's this gold box, right? And on top, the lid of the Ark of the Covenant was called the mercy seat. Inside the Ark of the Covenant was, which by the way, was made of pure gold, amazing, Ten Commandments were in there. Uh, manna from heaven was in there. And Aaron's staff that budded is in there. But on the top of the mercy seat, what's really interesting is that there's two cherubim, right? Two kind of epic angels. And these wings are just kind of curved over. I was going to show you a picture, but I thought me doing this uh, was going to be better for us that you could like really capture it. All right. Right? So there's two <laughs> angels on top and their wings are like this. And that's the lid, that's the mercy seat. And it represents God's holiness and God's presence over the law, right? Over his uh, provision for his people in the wilderness. That God's presence promises to dwell there. Now here's what's crazy about the mercy seat. You only got to see that bad boy once a year. And it was on the day of atonement where the high priest the head honcho of the priesthood would go in on the Super Bowl of all sacrifices, the Day of Atonement, and once per year he would purify the mercy seat because the idea is that the mercy seat, God himself was bearing the sins of the community all year and that once per year you could come in and purify the mercy seat so that the sins of all the people would be forgiven. Here's what the tax collector is saying. The tax collector is saying, treat me as somebody who is guilty but has been forgiven. Treat me as somebody who is accepted on the basis of the blood that is sprinkled on the mercy seat. That's pretty cool. So whereas the Pharisee shows pride, the tax collector shows humility. Humility is the posture that makes mercy possible. Humility comes from a true view of yourself. If pride distorts our view of self and God, humility has to start with a true view of ourself and God. Now, humility is not self-deprecating, like, oh, stupid me, stupid, 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 right? It is that. I do that sometimes a lot. But humility is understanding that you're not more 
than you are, but you're also not less than you are. That you're humbled by how flawed you are, but you're also filled with a crazy amount of gratitude for what you do have. Humility shows up in a posture of complete dependence on God. And the story's so crazy because the Pharisee should know that, yet he doesn't display that. The tax collector does. Now watch the end of the story, verse 14. Here's how Jesus sums it up. So I tell you, this one, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. That's the clincher of the whole story is that the tax collector is the one who leaves justified. That's wild. The fact that a self-confessed sinner the one who clearly knows they're guilty, probably had a pretty rough Saturday night the night before, is there knowing that he is in need of mercy and God says he's justified and the other one is not. It's so counterintuitive. And not only is it counterintuitive, it would be offensive to the Pharisees and the Jewish community because to them it would actually be seen as lowering the standard of divine justice. It would be seen as making the law like obsolete almost. So imagine the tax collector is there, the one that's forgiven, the one that has been given mercy. The Pharisee's like, well, then what's the point? Like, why am I doing all this stuff? Why am I sitting with my pimento, my cumin, and my dill, right? Because the Pharisee thinks that doing all of this, that obedience itself is the way that he earns mercy. But the tax collector knows that even at his best, there's nothing that he can do to earn the mercy of God. That's the difference here. The Pharisee misses that point. That obedience doesn't earn God's mercy. It's an overflow from our experience of it. Amen? It means that uniquely in the gospel, church, in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that God himself shows up as mercy in flesh. That Jesus shows up as the mercy seat in fleshed that the gospel says that you can't make your way to God, so God made his way to us. But here's this. The grace and the mercy of the gospel says that God doesn't love you more because you're succeeding and killing it. Some of you need to hear that. But also, God doesn't love you any less when you're failing. And that changes everything. Does that not change everything? Does that not give you a completely different motivation for going and doing anything good at all? Knowing that there's nothing you can lose because you haven't gained it. That it's been given to you. That you've been lavished upon with the mercy of God. And you get to work from that as a sinner, as the tax collector. One of my favorite examples of this in Jesus is in Ephesians 2. Verse four through five, it says this. After highlighting how dead we are in our trespasses and how our goodness cannot earn the grace and mercy of God, the apostle Paul writes this, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he has for us, made us alive with Christ even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by what? You are saved by your resume. You are saved by your obedience. You are saved by how much you're crushing it. You are saved by how much square footage you got and how many renovations you got done in your kitchen. You are sa- no, you are saved 
by grace. Now watch this, verse eight and nine. You are saved by grace through faith and this is not from who? Yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works so that no one can boast. Now listen. This looks like and sounds like it's gonna cheapen God's grace, but this isn't cheap grace. Cheap grace just shows up and says, I love you, Scooter, you're amazing, and there's nothing required of you in response. But God's grace in the gospel has this grace completely lavished on us, and then Jesus says, so if you love me and if you get this, come with me and obey my commandments. There's a radical change in us. Something about us, our affections change, our desires change. We don't want to hang out where we used to be hanging out. We want to be doing what we were doing. That there's something about us that truly in the private world, right? Like, like, listen, like you are who you truly are when no one else is looking. Are you with me on that? The grace of God changes you there. God's mercy changes you there. And then, then the rest of your life is just an overflow. The point that's being made in this parable is that when you've experienced God's mercy and amazing grace, you don't get to walk with a swag anymore. And the only swag that's left, sorry, swagger, swagger, yeah, okay, good. Got everybody, got every age group, okay. You don't strut, is that better? Right. You don't get to strut anymore. The only strut you have left is that you know you don't even, you don't even belong there, but you're at the party, right? You ever been in like a VIP situation? And you're like in the room, you're looking around, you're like, I don't belong here. These people are amazing. That's exactly what God's grace and mercy does to us. That then we go live through the rest of the life. Like, I don't even belong being here, but here I am. This food is amazing, right? That's what it does to us. Dane Ortland in his book, Gentle and Lowly, writes this. I want to share this. Then we'll apply this and pray. Watch this. God is not tight-fisted with mercy, but open-handed. He's not frugal, but lavish. Not poor, but rich. It means the things about you that make you cringe most make him hug hardest. Some of you don't believe that. It means how mercy is not calculating and cautious like ours. It is unrestrained. It is flood-like. It is sweeping, magnanimous. Don't even know what that means. Sounds really awesome. It means that our haunting shame is not a problem for him, but it's the very thing that he loves most to work with. It means that our sins do not cause his love to take a hit. Our sins cause his love to surge forward all the more. It means on that day when we stand before him quietly, unhurriedly, we will weep with relief, shocked at how impoverished a view of his mercy-rich heart we had. That's him commenting on Ephesians 2, the reality that even in our sin, but God has lavished us with mercy. Last thing here the Pharisee misses that we need to get is that I think we reveal what we believe about God most when he extends, bless you. <clears throat> Let me rewind. We reveal what we believe about God most when he extends grace and mercy to people that we don't think deserve it. 
Some of us have a God in our image that is only rooting for us and not rooting for anyone else. If you ever find yourself thinking, how could someone struggle with that? As if their sin doesn't make any sense and yours does? You've just sidestepped God's mercy. The Pharisee's problem is that he was too good to be saved. (laughs) That was his problem. Now we know that's not true, but he definitely thought it was. If we think we have nothing to be saved from, we in fact will not be saved. That's the Pharisee's issue here. And so when God actually extends mercy to people who we think, no way, not them, we actually reveal how small, how impoverished a view we have of God's mercy. And not only that, we have a distorted view of how deeply in need we are of God's mercy. So Springvale, the new creation, the new heaven, new earth, when all tears are wiped away, when there's no more sin, when there's no more chaos, when there's no more strife, when there's no more brokenness, that reality won't be full of self-assured people who head straight in. <laughs> that reality, the new creation, will be full of people that they, they, they know they've done nothing to deserve being there and just can't believe that they are. Let me pray for us to that end. Bow your head. I'm gonna read a few, Hebrews 4.16 as a benediction. Listen. Let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace to receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. Good Father, we are thankful that we have a gospel big enough to cover the sin that we uncover. That we don't need to hide because we're not earning our way to be here at all. That this is a gift freely to be received by grace. That it is your mercy that you don't give us what we do deserve and your grace that you give us what we don't deserve. That is true about the gospel. I pray for each of us. Some of us, we grew up with just the weight of legalism just a weight of failure that will never amount to anything that will never be good enough, whether that's religious or non-religious burden. I pray right now, Spirit, you would lift that burden right off of them and that they would hear your voice and your invitation to come and just say, have mercy on me, O God, the sinner. And I pray for all of us who have maybe forgotten that our record and how well we serve and give and follow you and our obedience is not the way that we impress you, but our obedience is the overflow of us being already so impressed by who you are. I pray that now as we we pray, as we sing, as we go out into our week, that we would be able to approach the throne of grace with confidence, not with our own swagger, but because we have received the richness of your mercy. We ask all these things in the only name that matters. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Dustin.